morning. You can turn in them to Mark chapter 1, and we're going to start just a little bit earlier than where we ended last week. So we're going to go back a couple of verses uh, to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and following. I have myself a gaggle of children. In fact, when we got out of the car today, someone was laughing, and I said, yes, it is like a clown car. I try to spend time with them individually. Uh, I like to go fishing with them. One time, my wife, Gina, and I took all five of them fishing at once, and then we decided not to be idiots anymore, and now I take them as individuals or in pairs. Well, I had my boys out not too long ago, and uh, we were fishing, and my five-year-old, he's just the man. He's going for it. My two-year-old can just hold the reel under his armpit and sort of go like this. And he's determined, that two-year-old. He's determined, but that's about all he can do. So my, my five-year-old and I, we're fishing, we're going at it. And, and I said to them, look, boys, you can see some turtles popping their heads out of the water looking at us. And they, they said, oh, okay, which they couldn't see. They couldn't figure it out. But anyhow, we're about an hour in, and my, my two-year-old's about had it. So he goes and sits in my oversized lawn chair, and I cast out for him as far as I can, because the farther I can cast, the longer it takes him to get it back in. And he puts it under his arm, and he starts going like this. And so I, get it, I know I can get a couple of casts in before he gets his back in. And, and he says, Daddy. I says, Yes, Lynn. And he goes, I'm going to catch a turtle. <laughs> and I says, You do that, Landon. So I cast out again. He's just, Brr. he says, Daddy. I says, What? He says, I'm going to catch a turtle. I said, Good for you. And so one more time, he looks, says, Daddy. And I says, What, Landon? And he goes, I'm going to catch a turtle. I said, great, you do that, Landon. And all of a sudden, I saw his rod tip go like that. And of course, you guys know, you, if you guys who fish or gals who fish, you know, I'm like, bass on. Yeah, my two-year-old's going to catch a bass. So I said, start reeling, Landon, start reeling. So he sticks his tongue out like this. And how many of you have ever had a bass get off the line and just about cried, okay? So I realize I'm going to help him, so I go to the edge of the dock, and I start pulling the line like this as he's pulling. And I'm pulling, and I'm pulling, and I'm thinking, this is the heaviest bass I've ever seen. He's never going to get this up out of the water. And all of a sudden, I look down, and right below the dock, attached to his line, is the greatest, biggest snapper I've ever seen. <laughs> At least 20 inches head to tail. It had moss on it. It was older than me. And so the boys and I are all going, <laughs> and this thing's head's going, as we're pulling. And I thought to myself, yeah, we're in trouble. How am I ever going to get this thing off the line? There's no way I can pull this thing up over the top, nor would I, because none of us would have fingers left. So I didn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, that little turtle looked at me and went, whoop, and just spit the hook right out of his mouth. But not before Landon had caught his turtle, right? <laughs> So I, 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 isn't there something endearing about a little two-year-old calling their shot, you know? <laughs> that's, that's like, yeah, you, you called it, Landon. We went back out the other night. We didn't catch anything, but he was still, I'm going to catch another turtle. It didn't happen, but he caught his turtle, and I was proud of him. I was happy for him. There's something so incredible about that moment when somebody calls their shot, and then they hit it. Then they hit it. Well, we're going to see in the Bible today a moment where Jesus... This person that we've been studying last week and into this week, Jesus is going to call his shot, but he's going to call his shot with other people. He's going to tell others what they're going to accomplish, and then they're going to do it. And what I want to look at, with, at, look at with you today are the principles 
of what it means to be part of Jesus' team. Because Jesus, immediately upon beginning his ministry on this earth, created a team, a team of disciples that he was going to change the world with. We learned last week in in our beginning uh, session of Jesus 101 that the gospel is something that changes the world forever. And Jesus says the gospel has come, believe, repent, the time is fulfilled, the world is going to be changed forever. And immediately he goes and puts together his team and he tells that team exactly what they're going to accomplish. Well, the good news is for you and me is we're on his team today. And he has told us already what we're going to accomplish the question is, are we going to look at the principles of being part of his team and allow, it, allow them to change and transform us? We're going to look at two passages today, Mark chapter 1, and then we're going to skip forward to Mark chapter 6 in order to see these principles of being on Christ's team in action. Let's read Mark chapter 1, 14 and following together. Now, after, Jesus was, or after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, you all know him as Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, before we get any further, don't you feel bad for Andrew and John? They're only known by who their brothers are. Recently, I was out and about, and somebody called me Natalie's dad. I was highly offended. I am so much more than Natalie's dad, happy to be Natalie's dad, but I'm now being identified by other people. So Andrew gets identified by Peter, John here gets identified by his brother and his father, but what's most important is that Jesus is calling together his team, a team of gospel workers, a team of catchers. And we see in this call three principles that I want you to see just from this particular chapter as Jesus calls his shot and says to these guys, I'm going to make you fishers of men. It's interesting that God does very little without sort of uh, prefacing it or without showing us something in advance of God doing this. And this idea that God is going to make fishers of people in order to fish for other people is is existing in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16. So uh, 600 years before any of this took place, God said, I'm going to call for many fishers and they shall go out and catch those who were trying to catch. Now Jesus has come to earth. He says the time is fulfilled. The gospel, which is going to change the world forever, is here because I'm here. Oh, and by the way, my team is going to be full of people who I call fishers of men. Now we know these guys as disciples. Mark calls them also apostles, which means sent ones, but we know them as disciples. A disciple is sort of like a a high-level apprentice. Now we have some apprenticeships going on in culture today, especially among the trades. You learn under a master, you learn how to do something well for a number of years, and once you have shown great proficiency at doing what the master has taught you, you go ahead and you go out and you do it yourself. This is what these guys do. They become disciples of Jesus. They are going to learn what the master teaches them and then go out and do what the master does. But disciples in the ancient world went one step further. 
they left everything that they knew, everything that they were doing, and they spent all their time with the master. They, they, they didn't go home at night. In fact, this happened in America up until the time of the Industrial Revolution. People who did an apprenticeship would still go and like live in the household or live in the shop of the person who they were working with, and that person was responsible for their care, for their training, for their moral supervision, for their livelihood. So when these guys are being called by Jesus, they know what Jesus is calling them to. Let's be real. They know that they are being called to be disciples of Jesus. And if Jesus was already preaching in Galilee, there is a good uh, chance that these guys perhaps had heard Jesus preach already. There's a good chance that that was the case. But this is still an incredible thing that takes place because immediately after beginning his ministry, we want to see this within context, Jesus begins his earthly ministry of the gospel that's going to change the world and immediately goes and puts a team of disciples together, ones who are going to stay with him, ones who are going to learn from him, one who are, ones who are going to be under his care, one who are going to be trained by him, and one that is going to give them moral supervision in order to do exactly what Jesus did. If Jesus comes out and his duty, his goal, his aim is to proclaim the gospel, the good news of God, that God's changing the world forever, then eventually the disciples are going to do it too. The second thing I want you to see, the second principle, is, is not just that Jesus builds a team, but Jesus calls his own team. There is no application process for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That there is no text 7711 to this, we'll send you the application, and then there's an interview process. None of that. Jesus calls people to be on his team. People don't call Jesus, Jesus calls people. This is an important point for us to make, and it's all over the New Testament, and it connects us to this concept today. All over the New Testament, Peter, Paul, the writers of the New Testament say, Jesus the Lord has called you. It's in Corinthians, it's in Galatians, it's in 1 Peter, that Jesus is still calling disciples. Everyone who becomes a follower of Jesus is someone who's been called. Now, we have this thing going on in the English language all the time where we look at somebody and go, yeah, I found Jesus. But it's sort of a misnomer. Jesus found you. And we say, well, I found God. No, God found you. God called you. And if you want to do a really interesting word study, if you really love studying your Bible, I would encourage you to look at the word called this week. Because the more you look at called, the more you will look and go, hold on a minute. I didn't find God. He found me. I, I didn't invite God into my life. He invited me into his. I didn't ask Jesus into my heart. Jesus invited me into his heart. And it changes your mindset when you realize that God views you with utmost importance for his plan. He called you to accomplish his plan. The master calls the disciple in order to do what he wants them to do. In fact, the word church, you're in church today. Everybody in church? Are you in church? Like, I'm not sure. I didn't have coffee. This is church that you're in. The Greek word for that is ekklesia. Do you know what that means in Greek? The called ones. Here you are. The church. The called ones. You are a disciple of Jesus Christ just by sort of being here. Now, it doesn't mean you've employed all the principles of being a follower of Jesus, but it does mean that God in some way has called you. And then, of course, you must see the immediacy of this moment. This is pretty immediate. Simon, Andrew, follow me. Okay, here I go. John, James, come on, let's go. Dad, we're out. 
This is what takes place in this moment. This is meant to be dramatic, and it is dramatic. Jesus isn't waiting around. In fact, I sort of picture Jesus like, guys, let's go. And the guy's going. It says, immediately, Peter and Andrew dropped their nets and went. Immediately, the guys left their dad in the boat, which is like so, like, that's just, imagine Christmas next year, you know, just bad. Bad news, right? Immediately, they leave. You see, immediately, twice. There's immediacy to this. And for those of you who know Christ Jesus, for those of you that they really say, that would really say, I really know the Lord, you remember a moment of immediacy. Where it's like, you know what, am I going to do things my own way, or am I really going to follow him? Do you remember that moment? Some of you might not have had that moment yet. If you stick around church long enough, you're going to have that moment. Just being real. Where God's going to say, are you going to follow me for real or not? It's an important moment. There's an immediacy to it. And when God speaks that in your heart, it's time to follow him. Don't linger. It's one of the principles we want to see today. Four more principles to share with you for being part of God's team, but we're going to have to turn to Mark chapter 6 to see this thing in real time. How does this all play out? What do the disciples end up doing? Well, let's go ahead and look at what some of these, these four plus eight others begin to do on behalf of Team Jesus, all right? We're going to be in verse 7 and following, and we're going to see how this plays out practically. Chapter 6 of Mark, verse 7 and following, and for those of you who are wondering what version I'm reading out of, it's the English Standard Version. Verse 7, so he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and won't listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet off as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the disciples go out and do exactly what Jesus was doing. Now, I know you haven't seen Jesus battling any evil spirits or, or, or healing anybody at this point. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. But the one thing we want to see is they go out and they begin to proclaim. The same way we saw it in verse 14 and 15, they now, after in very short order, go out and do what Jesus was doing. But they do so in a way that's not very palatable. And I think a couple of you might be thinking, Pastor Matt, is this what you want me to do? Because, because if this is really what... What we're all supposed to do, I, number one, I would have to leave this dapper sport coat right here. <laughs> Secondly, I would have to leave my wallet with one of you, and that would be a hard choice, all right? Then I would go out with absolutely no food, no money. It says no bag. That means a beggar's bag So, so in the Greek, so that means they're not allowed to go around saying, help, help, help. I don't have any money or any bread. They're not allowed to do that. They're not allowed to beg. So in essence, I would, I would go into the next town. What's the next town that way? Somebody help me out. Hudson? Uh, nobody's going to help me there. Let's go this way. All right? So I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If you're from Hudson, God bless you. I love you. It's a joke. It's just a joke. I, I'm from the falls. You know, there's a lot of great churches in Hudson. I'm sure you'll be there next week. But anyhow, uh, I'll go. I, I, I'm from Cuyahoga Falls. I'll go this way. I'll go into, no one will receive me in Stowe. I'm from Cuyahoga Falls. I'm going to head to Akron. Chances are better for me in Akron. I'm going to begin to preach that people should repent and turn towards God. And if I encounter any evil there, uh, I have authority over that. And if I encounter any sick people, I should pray for them. 
and I hope that someone will receive me into their home and not kill me during the night. That, that's, that might be what you're thinking, but that's not what I'm telling you, all right? Listen, times have changed. There is no laws surrounding hospitality in the United States. You don't go stay in strangers' homes relying on their hospitality. If you do, our elders will be here after service to talk to you about this dangerous practice, okay? That, that's not something we do today. This is very different. It was a world that would have expected itinerant preachers. That wouldn't have been surprising that someone would come out and preach in the middle of the town square. It's a very different world today. But the principles that we can see do not change. We're not supposed to do exactly what they did, but we can see some great principles. And the first principle is a master sends his disciples. They are sent. They are sent to do as the master does or as the master did. And they go out and they are, they are engaging in what the master does, which is to preach. And, of course, we're going to learn in the coming weeks that Jesus had authority over evil spirits and that Jesus had the authority to heal. This is an important point for us to make because disciples of Jesus don't get to hang back forever. They don't get to hang back in the boat. They don't get to hang back in the shadows. Eventually, they are sent out to do that for which they are called. You don't get to hang back forever. For those of you who are one of our, I think, Pastor on I counted 25 life groups as part of Victory Life Church. So join the story, live the story, which is live, live the story life groups. That helps you uh, be discipled and spend more time learning about who Jesus is and what he expects from your life. One of the things that I would look at life group leaders, and, and I'm one of them, is to say, okay, life group leaders, you're spending time helping make disciples of Jesus. At what point are people sent from your life group? At what point are they sent out to do what you are learning about? At what point are they commissioned to do what Jesus has done through your life group? It's a great question for us to ask ourselves because eventually what is living the story must turn into telling the story. What's eventually being a disciple results in being sent to tell what Christ has done on our behalf. It's an important mission, and that's what they do. They go out and proclaim that the gospel is here. The good news is here. God's changing the world forever. We know that he is because this Jesus guy is astounding. And, of course, we learned a lot about who Jesus was last week. So if you missed the message, go to vlchurch.com and check, check Sermon 1 of Jesus 101 so you can sort of get that idea of who Mark is claiming that Jesus is. The second thing that we learn, the second principle from this particular passage, is that they were given Christ's authority. They were given Christ's authority. Immediately it's, it says they had authority over evil spirits, and then at the end of the passage, after it says that they went out and preached, it said they were able to cast out evil spirits and they were able to heal the sick. They were given Christ's authority. So they went out and they did that, those things that they saw Christ doing. Now we're going to talk about these evil spirits and we're going to talk about the nature of healing in the coming weeks, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time there today. But I want to just give you a, a summation of what this means. It would be very easy in the, in the life that these guys were about to lead, where they are leaving the master, going out and doing the things that they are set, meant to do, doing so in a way that none of us would have preferred to do it, to go out and go, the evil world is going to eat me up. And Jesus says, no, you have my authority on you. You're going to eat up the evil. You don't need to be worried about what the evil world's going to do to you. Evil in the world needs to worry about what Christ is going to do through you. That's the difference. That's the difference. So for those of you who are tracking with me today and you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. God's called me. Yeah, part of the team. Yes, follow him. Yes, 
I'm discipled. Yes. I want to get sent. Yes. Ooh, there's evil out there. You have the authority of Christ in your life today. You don't need to worry about the forces arrayed against you. At another place in the New Testament, it says that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You go out and take territory for the kingdom of God. And whatever kingdom you encounter, they're on borrowed time. You got to remember that. Sent ones need to remember that they have Christ's authority. More on healing and these evil spirits in the coming weeks. Now, the third thing we want to see, and the majority of the second passage is given to the idea that they were made to trust. No money, no extra tunic to keep out the night's cold or to use as a pillow. No beggar's bag, no bread. Now, that's tough. See, Jesus is calling them to do something that is already unpalatable. Go preach the gospel. Go to towns and villages that you've never been for. But I want you to do so in such a way that you have to trust that I'll take care of you the entire time. <sighs> for those of you who've been Christians long enough, you're like, I hate this part of my faith right here. I hate this part of The fact that when God sends me out, he wants me to trust him. Because most of our lives is spent insulating ourselves against having to trust God for anything. I mean, we're Americans. We, we spend most of our lives trying to insulate ourselves against having to trust God for anything. And here these guys are going to have to trust God for everything. Why would Jesus do this to them? Why would Jesus sort of send them without anything but the message and the authority and go, you got to trust me for the rest? Why would he do something so sinister? Why would he treat them in this despicable fashion? Well, let us remember that the disciples and people who follow Jesus are not called to be perfect. Do you remember this? Do you remember this from Christian Doctrine 101? The idea that, that, that Jesus had, had came to the earth because human beings couldn't be perfect. But what restores the relationship between God and human beings from the human side? When instead of going to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and saying, I don't trust you, God, going to the source of life and saying, I do trust you, God. I trust you for my life. I trust you for my future. I trust you for everything I'm going to need. And God goes, that's right. We're back in relationship the way we should be. We're in relationship the way we should be. The human side of this entire thing is not that we could become perfect. The human side of this entire thing with God is that we can learn to trust him. But the disciples, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, they need to learn to trust on a radical level because God's going to do radical things in and through them. And believe it or not, this is not their toughest mission that they'll ever undertake. It's not the toughest mission that they'll ever undertake. Jesus also says, by the way, oh, expect hardship. There are going to be some towns and villages that receive you not. I have to say it in the old English because it feels more powerful. There's going to be towns and villages that nobody will offer you hospitality. They will say, shut up. We don't want to hear that. We're already good with God. Leave us alone. And, and, and Jesus says, go ahead and just, just shake the dust off your feet before you leave the town. That'll show them. <laughs> what, what that's, what's behind that is, the, because of, of, of 
of the Jewish proclivity to see themselves as God's people and incredibly important, when they would travel outside the country before they came back into Israel, they would shake and clean all the dust off of their bodies so as not to bring contaminating dust into Israel. Okay? So what Jesus is really saying is, is, listen, guys, what I'm doing in the gospel is so serious, and what I've come to do for humanity is so important. If you go in a town that doesn't receive you, don't even give them the benefit of carrying that dirt somewhere else. Leave that dirt right where they're at. Shake it off. Because you've got somewhere else to go, and there's someone else who will receive you and who are, is going to receive the gospel, and you just keep going. Oh, and by the way, you will go hungry that night, and there will be no tunic for your head. Expect hardship, right? Expect hardship. But also know that I'll take care of you. None of the disciples starved to death. I'll just put it there, out there for all of you. Nobody starved to death. No, nobody was, was completely malnourished, and they were actually effective. In fact, the other Gospels tell us a little more of the story. They came back to Jesus going, this was awesome! We went out and did what you did! They were pumped when they came back to Jesus because that's the final principle. Disciples need to know that Jesus has called his shot and therefore you will be effective. They were effective. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They were effective. They did what Jesus called them to do. They didn't shrink back and say, I don't think I can do that. I'm going to go hide in Capernaum until Jesus returns. No, they went out. They had authority. They preached the message. They trusted God. God took care of them, and they prepared people's hearts and minds for the day that Jesus came through. They did it. They were effective. Now, I said, why do you think that Jesus made it so hard on them, and does he always make it so hard on us? I don't know. I think sometimes he does. I think part of, of what is a great measure of our faith and our churches is whether or not we have put ourselves in position to need something from the Lord. Have we put ourselves in position to trust him so that he can prove himself effective? Not so we can prove that we're effective, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a bass on the line. That's me. No, but I have to trust him for everything so he can prove that he's effective. That's part of building further trust. We have to always ask ourselves this question. Are we putting ourselves in position to need something from the Lord or not? Because that's a real test of whether or not we're part of God's team or where we want God to be part of our team. Ooh, that's really good. Someone should write that down. You note takers, post that on Facebook later. Put my name next to it. Yeah. I didn't even have that in the notes. <laughs> the reason God required so much of these early disciples and what they did is because their biggest task was not yet there. Their biggest task was the moment after Jesus had died and rose again, and he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you. Behold, I am with you even until the end of the age. Their biggest task was yet to come. Isn't it interesting that they probably thought that the task right in front of them was the big one? But God was preparing them for the bigger one. The one by which that they would produce churches and go into all the world and all these different nations and preach 
in, in places that had never heard the name of Jesus and where the, the concept of being a Christian had not yet even begun to flower. And they went out into the world proclaiming and preaching the gospel to people, making more disciples who would make more disciples, who would make more disciples, who would make more disciples. And then one day at 3833 Hudson, or Hudson Drive in Stowe, 300 people would be sitting here going, we serve Jesus. But these principles have to be employed in order for the kingdom to move forward, in order for God's team to take off. There has to be radical trust. There has to be the authority of Christ. There has to be ascending. There has to be a calling. There has to be an immediacy to that calling. There has to be these things among the people of God to continue what God is doing in the earth. Could these 12 have imagined that one day they would be two billion? That's how many Christians are in the world today. These 12 would one day do what Jesus had done with them and would one day be two billion. I bet they were glad they put themselves in a position to need something in the Lord from the Lord way back in Israel before they got to the uttermost parts of the earth. I bet they were glad that they allowed themselves to be sent and obey in the small things before God sent them on to bigger and better things. Because in the end, the mission doesn't change. God wants his disciples to be fishers of men. Just the size and the gravity of the kingdom's growth changes if people will employ the principles of being part of God's team. You know who one of the most annoying characters in movie history is? Hermie the dentist. You know Rudolph? Red-nosed reindeer? Elves are making toys? Hermie's sitting there depressed. And when he's asked, why aren't you making toys and why are you so bad at this? Hermie says, I want to be a dentist. That's what he wants to do. Now, he's an elf. Elves make toys. Everybody knows this. But Hermie, it's Hermie. I looked it on Wikipedia, so I know it's true. Hermie, not Herbie, Hermie wants to be a dentist. All the other elves are like, why would you want to be a dentist? You were a born elf. Well, eventually he's going to be able to pull the tooth of the abominable snowman. It's going to be the highlight of his career. <laughs> but what I'm concerned about for the future of the church in America, for, for, for the church in the Western world, is that, it's that oftentimes we all want to be dentists. Or many of us want to be dentists when disciples were born to be fishers. That Jesus called us in order to fish, not in order to pull teeth. If you're a dentist, I'm sorry. Dentists, people from Hudson, we'll see you. God bless you. We send you forth from us in the name of the Lord. But I'm concerned that oftentimes we can get very comfortable within the church setting, forgetting that we are the called ones who are also the sent ones, who are sent to proclaim, and as we put it, point people to Jesus, who are sent to proclaim who Jesus is and the good news of the gospel of God, but we would rather stay home and be dentists when we were called to be fishermen. See, that's the payoff of being a disciple of Jesus. It is the great business of every Christian to save souls, said Charles Finney leader of the Second Great Awakening, the great business of every single one of us to give it away. 
Because what Jesus came to do is unmatched in human history. There is nothing more important going on in the universe today than what Jesus has done on behalf of human beings. Nothing more important going on in the universe today than what Jesus has done on behalf of human beings. We don't want to be dentists when Christ has called us to be fishers. And just like the disciples, the called ones, we are part of the team. We are disciples. We are called ones. We should immediately follow that calling so that he can send us, give us his authority, cause us to trust him, and then watch the fish come in. Now, I think the analogy of fishing is very apropos because I'm not a good fisherman. Sometimes I go out there, and in fishing terms, I get skunked. It's one thing getting skunked alone as a 35-year-old man. It's another thing when kids are depending upon their fun in catching, not fishing. Sometimes fishing is tough. Sometimes fishing takes faith. Sometimes fishing requires you to sleep with no tunic for your head and no bread in your belly. But there is nothing like getting one on the line. No feeling like that. And for those of you who know today who you are in Christ, you're called, you're sent, you have authority, you have seen God's faithfulness in your life before, he needs you to be a fisher, not a dentist. He needs a doggedness about you to throw that line in the water and reel it in and reel it in and reel it in and go, oh, empty. And reel and reel and reel. Empty. I'm going to change lures. Reel it in and reel it in and empty. Oh, no, it's getting dark. The river boat after dark. Fish on. He needs people who are dogged in their pursuit of souls. Ready to be disciples, not dentists. Ready to be what they were called to be. Not to be what they call themselves to be. You say, how do I do that? How do I do that? First recognize that you were called. You didn't call him, he called you. He's the one calling his shot. You're not calling it for him. He says, if you'll allow me to send you, if you'll allow me to show my authority in your life, if you'll allow me to prove myself faithful in you, you will be effective. There's opportunity knocking in your life today. The lake is teeming with fish. But will you throw your line in the water? Will you throw your line in the water? For those of you who know what, exactly what I'm talking about, I want you to hold tight for just a minute. In fact, I would even encourage you to begin to pray, Lord, help make me a fisher of men once more. But if today you don't know what I'm talking about at all, and you would say, Pastor Matt, I have no idea what's going on here. Other than it seems that Jesus calls people 
and then wants to use them for what he's doing in the world. If you got that much today, you've got it. But now there's an immediacy for you because he's not just doing that theoretically. He wants to do that in you. He wants the brokenness of your relationship, the separation that you feel between yourself and God to be mended today with an immediacy. And he wants you to follow him. He wants you to follow him. The gospel will change your life. The good news is great news. God has done everything for you on your behalf to make you new, to give you new and eternal life. Would everyone here bow your heads, please, as we take a few minutes to pray. First, for those of you who are in this place and you say, Pastor Matt, I'm recognizing that I've been around church, that I've heard a number of these sermons from you or others. I've heard it from my friends, but I'm not following Jesus today. And I want Jesus to make me new, to change my life, to turn me back towards God. You say, are you talking specifically to me, Pastor Matt? No, this is for everybody who may be in this boat, but... God speaking to you, if you feel it in your heart, you'd say, I need to follow Jesus today. I need to start this process of following the one who I know is worth following. If that's you today, would you just raise a hand towards heaven? Just raise a hand right in this place and say, from this day forward, immediately, I'm going to start following God. I see those hands. I see that hand. I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to pull you up here, make you pray in front of everybody. But if you know you need today to follow Jesus for the first time or again, you raise a hand towards heaven. And as our elders come, quickly and quietly, if you're in this place today and you say, Pastor Matt, I need someone to send me, I know I'm called, I've been discipled, I get it, I know, but I feel very much like I need someone to pray over me and launch me back into this fishing for souls. I need that today. Someone to pray that God would use me, someone to pray that God would stir me up. You come right now, one of our elders would love to pray for you, don't wait. Don't wait, you come right now. We want to pray for you. Nothing weird's going to happen here. We're just going to take a few minutes to make God's house a house of prayer. But if you say, I want to be stirred up and I want to be prayed for, I want to fish once more. You come right now. Don't wait. Don't wait. Come right now. Say, I'm putting my line in the water and I want somebody to pray for me. Father God, I pray over those who raise their hands today. God, I pray that you would begin to speak into their heart and life, right even in this moment. God, I pray that you would remind them that following you is the greatest thing 
that they could ever do. I pray right now that they would just speak to you, Lord Jesus, and say, I turn my life toward you. I'll follow you the rest of my life. I'm done doing things my own way. I want to be part of your team. I want new and eternal life. Forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Make me new, I pray. And Lord, I will expect that you do incredible things in my life. You just put it in your own way. You pray to him right now. Put it in your own way. You don't need a pastoral prayer to follow Christ. You just need 